Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And yes, it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Welcome back to our section on objects from history, 100 bloody objects. What object have you got for us today, Jamie? Object number 14, Mount Tabor. Crazy cults to insanity and beyond. Excellent. So today we're going to talk about cults. Devotion paid to a person or thing, a fashionable enthusiasm, the transient fad of an in-group. Whilst a sect tends to be the deviant offshoot of an existing religion, a cult is usually a standalone concept, paranoid, isolated and distrustful of the outside world. There's a place in the human heart which is receptive to the spiritual, to the mysteries of life, the universe and everything. To the intergalactic traveller, it is the number 42. To the traditional Brit, it may be Christianity and the Church of England. To some poor souls in search of meaning, it is to fall victim to the charlatan, the snake oil salesman, to a cult. Its members are fair game for brainwashing, coercion and sacrifice. Sit back on your lizard tails, tune in your sub-ether ears and get ready to ride the astral plane. Jamie, where do we start? Well, we're going to start with that object number 14, Mount Tabor, because that gave rise to a sect that had cult tendencies called the Taborites in the 15th century. It had started long before that, and it was part of that sort of anti-establishment, anti-papacy movement, the Hussites, that really spread across the whole of Europe. You had the Bogomils in Bulgaria, the Arnoldists in northern Italy, the Petrobrusians in southern France, the Albigensians and the Cathars. You had all these sort of movements that started by being a sort of counterculture. And that developed onwards. And the one thing they tended to have in common, they believed in the end of days. They thought they were living in the days of doomsday and they'd be wiped out. And guess what? They usually were. So what, it's like a death cult? Well, you can see this sort of line from people such as the Taborites who sort of established their Tabor centre in uh, 1420 and then were, were wiped out in 1452 by local more sort of Hussite, more sort of mainstream forces. You can trace them through the Seventh-day Adventists to modern-day America and the Waco siege of 1993. You know, you throw in a bit of counterculture of the 60s, you throw in a bit of 1920s Aleister Crowley occultism, and there you have it. You have the sort of beginnings of modern cults, and you can really trace them back to the Middle Ages. But in the Middle Ages, I mean, it was a dangerous thing. If you're a member of a, of a cult in those days, you're going to have the Catholic Church after you. Yes, but the Catholic Church had its own superstitions. I mean, don't forget, the Pope was selling indulgences. There was a belief in relics, and there still is, obviously. And, and so you lived in uncertain, superstitious times. And when people are fearful, you know, you have a group coming along that offers certainty, that offers salvation, that offers access to heaven, and people start following it. So does that mean that the cult can eventually become an established religion? It can eventually become a movement if enough people believe in it. If you go back to the Middle Ages, you have this terribly uncertain time. I mean, you've got people dying from plague, from civil war, from pogroms. You, you have all this going on. And you get these cults coming in that believe in dualism, like like the Cathars. You know, this concept was that there was a transcendental goodness, a good God, and a corrupted evil God down on earth that was basically mankind. So you had all these sects, all these cults growing up. There was even one 
religious sect that believed that there was a finite amount of evil in the world and in order to get rid of it and have salvation you had to use it up by going out and committing desperately evil acts by murdering people torturing people raping and people believed that they had their followers you see human beings don't change through history yes it's like that concept of preemptive absolution it's quite uh, a horrific idea really that you can uh, you can do something bad because you think it's going to to add to the sum of good eventually. Yes, well, that that has been what both politi- political leaders and religious leaders have done through history. How does one create a cult? I think there's several elements, and and again, you see it through the centuries. I mean, the first thing you need are members to that cult. And again, human beings don't change. You're always going to get bums, losers, lonely people, drug addicts, alcoholics, the homeless, you know, people who are looking for some sort of protection, some sort of salvation, and, and want to be fed, quite apart from other things. And you, you come to the modern era, if there are people trying hallucinogenic drugs, if you have this counterculture going on, you can see in the late 60s how flower power turned rotten and gave us things like the Manson family or the Children of God, those modern cults that ended up with murder and rape and child abuse. What was it your father used to say? Oh, my father had a great expression, which sounds better in German, which is gegen dummheit ist nichts zu tun. With stupidity, you can do nothing. Well, actually, yes, you can. You can set up a cult and get adherence. And I always remember that movie, Independence Day, where everyone was cowering from these UFOs, these spaceships that were hovering over them. But in L.A., everyone was standing on the roofs of buildings with their arms raised, going, take us with you, experiment on us. You know, there's always going to be a fringe element that want to be drawn into these groups. And once you're drawn into these groups and you become isolated and the paranoia increases and you become more distrustful of the outside and you've given them all your money so you can't run away anyway, you're hooked, you're there. So that leads on to cult leaders. Yes, the other thing you need is cult leadership. And so often it is proved that they are either sexual predators or fraudsters or both. And there's some extraordinary examples of these. I mean, some are charismatic, some aren't. Um, Some are just damn good liars. And they remind me of the mountebanks of the 19th century going around America on carts and selling giving their sales patter and selling everything from snake oil to charms to elixirs to potions to anything that would give eternal life to people. People always want that fix. It's a, it's another form of sort of retailing, retailing, isn't it? But instead of retailing or selling an object, you're selling an idea. You're selling salvation. And if you look at some of the leaders, it may start with a message of, for example, Bhagwan Raj Nish, who in the 80s, his cult was selling sort of polyamorous free sex. But in the end, it all turned, again, pretty bad because they were found to have been trying to poison the local salad bars with salmonella and the local water system to try and get rid of or at least incapacitate the local populations so that this cult could take over the local politics. So it turns bad. And people are credulous. People are suggestible. There was one cult called Angel's Landing run by Daniel Perez who ended up being charged with murder. He ended up claiming life insurance from the people he was murdering. He was going around persuading rather crazed women, that he was a 1,000-year-old angel and he could only be kept alive if he had sex with underage women. So this is the sort of person that you create. In Russia, Sergei Torop was claiming that he was a second Jesus. He even changed for his followers the date of Christmas to his own birthday, 14th of January, when he because he was born in 1961. That's and pretty he, cheeky. It's pretty cheeky and pretty arrogant and presumptuous. But he he had 7,000 followers out in Siberia near Krasnoyarsk. The authorities moved in on him eventually. But again, he sounded to me like a bit of a charlatan. And his second wife was a girl that he had lived with from the time she was seven years old. 
And you have to wonder what the motive is of the people who set them up. It tends to be control, coercion, and creating a sense of dependency. And, and allowing them to act at whatever weird things they want to with, with an overarching excuse rather than just they want to do it. You know, there's some greater power that's giving them the authority. You tend to have an overarching creed or ideology that holds it together, that creates that surface tension, that embraces the group. And once that group's inside, anyone who deviates from it is seen as a traitor and is dealt with uh, pretty directly and unpleasantly. And, and that's one of the reasons it's so difficult to escape. So you have the occult, you have the doomsday, sex obviously is a big one, violence, um, some sort of reinterpretation of Christianity, mysticism. Yes, they borrow from all sorts of things. I mentioned Alistair Crowley. I mean, he had a sort of sex cult back in the 1920s, so he was sort of there first. From Alistair Crowley's The Book of the Law, quotation one. Also take your fill and will of love as ye will, when, where, and with whom ye will, but always unto me. Love is the law, love under will. Quotation two. Every star must calculate its own orbit. All is will, and yet all is necessity. To swerve is ultimately impossible. To seek to swerve is to suffer. The beast 666 ordains by his authority that every man and every woman and every intermediately sexed individual shall be absolutely free to intercept and communicate self by means of any sexual practices soever, whether direct or indirect, rational or symbolic, physiologically, legally, ethically, or religiously approved or no, provided only that all parties to any act are fully aware of all implications and responsibilities thereof, and heartily agree thereto. Moreover, the beast 666 adviseth, that all children shall be accustomed from infancy to witness every type of sexual act, as also the process of birth, lest falsehood fog and mystery stupefy their minds whose error else might thwart and misdirect the growth of their subconscious system of soul symbolism. Quotation 4. There shall be no property in human flesh. The sex instinct is one of the most deeply seated expressions of the will and it must not be restricted, either negatively by preventing its free function, or positively by insisting on its false function. What is more brutal than to stunt natural growth or to deform it? What is more absurd than to seek to interpret this holy instinct as a gross animal act, to separate it from the spiritual enthusiasm without which it is so stupid as not even to be satisfactory to the persons concerned. The sexual act is a sacrament of will. To profane it is the great offence. All true expression of it is lawful. All suppression or distortion is contrary to the law of liberty. To use legal or financial constraint to compel either abstention or submission is entirely horrible, unnatural and absurd. You, know, you get various groups. I mean, do you remember Dashwood and the Hellfire Club? I mean, whether you call it a club or a cult, you know, you, you end up... Or an excuse to have an orgy, really, wasn't it? Yes, and you, you end up with sort of Satan worship and various bits of the occult. Uh, and and if you get suicide cults later on, like the Order of the Solar Temple, who killed themselves in Switzerland, um, they were picking things from the Knights Templar. They were basically a paedophile cult in a Welsh village, Kidwelly. And they brought in Alistair Crowley. They were bringing in uh, ancient Egyptian gods. And they had orgiastic rituals so it's it's a mishmash and it just keeps the people sort of confused but gives them something to hang on to but there's this extraordinary dynamic that there are people out there who want to have this kind of control over others and to act out their various fantasies and so on and then there are this other group of people who are sort of 
actively looking for someone to do this to them, seemingly. As I said at the beginning, you are always going to get scrapings. You're always going to get people who are lost and vulnerable, um, mentally incapacitated, who are drug addicted, who are just looking for something, looking for a home, looking for somewhere that their sort of madness can be incorporated, can somehow be uh, accepted. So how does this coercion and control work? Oh, I think isolating people is a key stage of, of doing anything. And then having levels to, to get to is also very useful because those levels tend to be, uh, well, they're hierarchical and people like hierarchy. People like to feel they're progressing, being made to feel good within that cult. Usually going through those levels involves handing over your money, so you've got nowhere to run to. Uh, if you do run out, if you do suddenly think this isn't working, it's very difficult to flee a cult. And I suppose once you buy into one simple little idea, you know, the, the, the lighter side of whatever the cult is, and then, you know, you wake up one day and find you're fully immersed in the whole thing. And there's always a darker side. I mean, the veneer is never what it is underneath. It may sound like free love at the start, but by the end, it's always involving murder and fraud. I mean, you can see it in a cult rape, after rape cult. and violence, yeah. Uh, completely, yeah. completely, and the manipulation and the exploitation of children. Well, let's talk about ancient cults. Ancient cults, like ancient religions, drew on many different influences. If you take the bull cult that was prevalent across parts of Asia and Mesopotamia and, of course, was on Crete as well. In Samaria, Mesopotamia, you had the cult of Marduk and Marduk was the uh, supposed to be the, the son of the sun god, Utu. He could take a bull form. If you go to Crete, of course, you get the famous bull cults, which included rituals such as uh, bull jumping and bull leaping and all that sort of thing. And, of course, the legend of the Minotaur. Yeah, and the labyrinth around, and all of that. Yes, yeah. around Knossos. So that bull thing and the sacred cows you see in modern religions today, it has a very strong presence throughout history. Various cults, like Mithras, for example, took the bull and sacrificed the bull in underground temples and had people underneath, probably covered in bull's blood. Is, is the bull the bull is a symbol of, of male fertility? Is that what it's partly and strength and you know it was seen as a very strong presence, just as the sun was seen as a very strong presence. It's quite interesting that in early Christian uh, symbology, when you see images of Christ, you know he is linked with the sun, with the well, rays the halo of the sun. Behind his head exactly, yeah. that really comes. You can link that back if you to. Egyptian religion and other practices. I mean, the sun has always had a very strong, Helios has always had a very strong influence on other religions and other cults. And if you take Christianity, there are so many influences. People say that modern churches take their shape from Mithraic temples, for example. You can also see the influences in Christianity of the Essenes, we produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, that Jewish sect that believed in 12 disciples, for example, in baptizing. You know, all these feed in, a bit of Buddhism. All those things feed into religion. And in the same way that cults, those more enclosed units, draw on so many different things, a sort of smorgasbord of religions, creeds and beliefs. So it's easier, really, not to invent the entire idea of your religion from scratch but actually to adopt previous beliefs and just change them and morph what, them into your own religion well it tends or to your be, own cult well it tends to be an evolution i mean if yeah. you look at cargo cults that came into being in the sort of 19th 20th centuries i mean these were tended to occur on polynesian islands and far-flung islands where you know, the outside world intruded with soldiers, with trade, with with cargo. And once those soldiers and trading ships left, once the sort of wars had, had retreated from those areas, those cultures 
thought the only way we can get those goods back, those bits of cargo back, is by replicating, tempting those gods back. And so you've got Polynesian islands where people were drilling like soldiers, were dressing as British soldiers or the Dutch or the French, and thinking that by doing that you would tempt the cargo back. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, it's like worshipping the sun because you want your crops to succeed. Yes, I mean, that's why you got a John Frum cult that believed that Prince Philip was a god because he visited once. But you're quite right too. He is. (laughs) He is a god. But the, the, the cults that occur so often arise, like religious sects, these cults tend to arise most when there are insecurities, when things that that are happening around them are bad, when threats press in. That's when people look to either establish religion or to things that work for them. And you say whether it's cargo cults or those taborites, it's a reaction to what is going on around them. So something old or something new, but they want their hand held. And something blue occasionally. (laughs) Yeah. And so quickly it seems that these cults turn into something sinister and horrific, whether it's a suicide cult, doomsday cult, or something even more violent. I mean, for instance, what about Jonestown, Jamie? Jonestown... 1979 is a classic example. And I, you know, I've always believed that if there's an absence of good, evil will prevail. And so often in these cults, there is an absence of good because they are there to exploit. And what starts with so much hope ends up pretty ugly. This is a movement of people in San Francisco who go or get persuaded to go by Jim Jones to South America, to Guyana. Yes, they ended up there. About a 1,000 of them were persuaded to go. And there was this belief, again, you know, we've talked about the counterculture of the 1960s. This grew out of the early 1970s, really, and it became this sort of idea, this cult of revolutionary suicide, in a way. Jim Jones was sort of preparing them for the possibility of mass suicide, giving them fruit punch, and saying it was poisoned and seeing who would drink it. And when they drank it, it's going, oh, it's not poisoned. But once you ended up with Leo Ryan, the congressman, going down there in 1979 with journalists to see what was going on, then it started getting really unpleasant. Uh, the congressman was murdered along with several of his uh, film crew that were accompanying him. But that was because they were basically trying to take a few people who wanted to leave with them. Yes, they took over a dozen with them and were trying to get them out. And so they were gunned down. And Jim Jones gave his last sermon and said, we're not going to take any more. This is the moment. There's plenty of evidence of murder among those who committed suicide. I mean, there there were people injected with cyanide uh, as as well as people who were drinking it. And there were 300 children who were killed. It was utterly desperate. Back at the commune, Jones gathered his followers for a final sermon. We've had as much of this world as you're going to get. Let's just be done with it. Let's be done with the agony of it. This time, Jones served a punch spiked with cyanide. More than 900 died, 300 of them children. Jones shot himself. But that sort of set the scene, set the tone, set the benchmark for other doomsday cults or cults that tended towards suicide later on. And there are plenty of them to, to, to look at. Yeah, well, you've got the Order of Solar Temple in Switzerland. Yes, and we mentioned them before because they were the ones who drew on things from the Knights Templar and all sorts of ideologies and creeds that they tapped into. They thought there was going to be an environmental disaster. Cue what's happening today. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how many of those who follow Extinction Rebellion end up in the more radical uh, ends of the spectrum. And so often, sort of political movements end up with a more radical fringe, a more violent fringe, or a more cultic fringe, who want to go further. 
for, for which change isn't fast enough, and therefore they take it into their own hands. And they can't get over the fact that somebody might have a different point of view to them. Oh, they don't like that at all. It starts with cancel culture and deplatforming. I mean, this is the trouble. If you don't allow other views to come in, it's very easy to start thinking in a total, totally linear, narrow-minded fashion, and that suits cults absolutely fine. So you've got the order of the solar temple in 1994, and then later on in 1997, you got Marshall Applewhite and his Heaven's Gate cult started in San Diego. They thought they could reach a higher plane by by essentially committing suicide. All these cults, the members end up essentially taking poison and putting bags over their heads and being found in different locations. Uh, so, you know, the, you had the Order of the Solar Temple Switzerland, you had uh, Heaven's Gate in America. And they didn't all take place in America. In Uganda, you had the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God's Massacre. That's a mouthful. No wonder they ended up killing themselves. It was a doomsday cult. Unlike Marshall Applewhite and his Heaven's Gate cult, they didn't think that there was uh, a spaceship they could get to on the other side of a comet, but they were doomsday and they believed in the end of days, just like the Taborites that we spoke of at the beginning. They ended up taking poison, uh, having other members killed, some of them self-immolated with petrol and matches, so it was pretty desperate. And again, children were involved. Yeah, that was in 2000. It was 780 died. Yes, it was absolutely dreadful. So these cults can spring up all around the world if the conditions are right, if people are isolated, if people don't have a sense of belonging, and if people are easily suggestible and incredulous and gullible. Yeah, so we started with suicide and doomsday cults. But some of these organisations, these cults, turn rarely violent, violent to outsiders. Well, I think if you can violate and abuse and kill your own cult members, it's not that too big a leap, not too big a stretch to actually go out and kill outsiders as well, particularly if you have a doomsday scenario in your head and you think you're doing right, if you're trying to start a movement, start a revolution. And so you know, come the late 1960s, you start with things like the Manson family. And we mentioned before, this was really the counterculture and the peace movement gone wrong. The, the wilting of flower power. It was. It's where the hippie trail ended, really. And where that sort of innocence of the 60s totally ended. Someone like Charles Manson, I mean, who would have thought that he actually auditioned for the Monkees, I believe? <laughs> so, <laughs> so he couldn't sing or play an instrument either? No, and having been spurned... He I, do, I up, like that band. I'm glad he wasn't a member of it. Yes, it would have changed the tone of it somehow. It might yeah. have lost its innocence. But as it was, he set up the Manson family in 1967. And by 1969, he was really evangelising on the concept of a race war. He believed in an apocalyptic race war. He latched on to Beatles' lyrics, particularly Helter Skelter, and he saw Helter Skelter as the sort of title for his launching of a race war. That ended up... Why, why did he feel he had to launch a race war? Was it just because he's a mission nut, statement? Because he's a nutter yeah. and because cults do have a mission statement and that happened to be his. Mm. He ended up being charged with conspiracy to murder because he claimed that he didn't actually order the killings. There were nine killings that his cult committed, including Sharon Tate and four others on one night. Two others were killed the following day. Sharon Tate was the pregnant wife of Roman Polanski. Yes, and these murders were horrific and it, it sort of galvanised... America into understanding how dangerous these cults and and how things could go wrong you know if you feed in LSD if you feed in counterculture if you feed in a sort of lonely ranch or hacienda somewhere where cult members could hang out you, all sorts of things could go on so he didn't have to issue orders he just had to set set the pieces up and put everything in motion. Yes, he gave the agenda. And again, once you have credulous, drug-crazed people who are easily coerced into doing what they end up doing or easily persuaded, 
then you are going to get violence. And that's what happened with Manson. He originally was given a death sentence, but that was commuted to life sentence. He died in 2017. But that was really the end. I mean, I think the swastika tattooed on his forehead might have been a giveaway of the sort of person he was. I think, did he get that done in prison? Probably, yeah. but uh, but I don't think he changed his views. I think he, yeah. it probably... They were externalised. Yes, yes, and I think prison, given that prison is so sort of divided between gangs and tribes, uh, that's what happens, and there's a strong neo-Nazi element running through those prisons. So, you know, you can see where the cults end up focusing their sort of internal rage ends up being being focused elsewhere and and they lash out particularly if they feel they're threatened and you look at the branch davidians in 93 and uh, what happened there and the fire that engulfed them all and after sort of federal agents were killed so this can happen you know more often than not when cults feel threatened take us across to japan and March 1995. That, again, was a doomsday cult, um, Shinriko, who ended up attacking the Tokyo underground with sarin gas, and they killed 13 people, injured almost 6,000. No, more, 6,252. Yes, and I think a 1,000 of them were blinded temporarily as well. So that's the end game for a lot of these doomsday cults. They want to take others with them. So it's they, like I'm, I, I'm going, but I'm going to take you with me. Yes, or they want to change society by doing something radical, a radical act. You see that sort of cult influence moving into terrorism. That particular cult had, the year before, got hold of a refrigerator van and tried to kill three judges at Matsumoto and killed eight people and injured 500, again, with sarin gas. So they were pretty avant-garde, pretty ahead of their time. They certainly thought outside the box. You can see that they don't always stick to conventional weapons and conventional tactics, and that is what these doomsday cults can end up doing. Once you brainwash your members enough, that's what they believe in. There's so many terrorist groups, terrorist cells, have that sort of cult feel to them. You only have to go back as far as the Red Army faction, Bader-Meinhof group, in the late 1960s and 1970s to see that sort of idea of the cult, that revolutionary cult, that ethos, affect them. And they ended up killing themselves in Stanheim jail. Okay, Jamie, let's hear a little bit more about uh, violence and the Bader-Meinhof. You can see Bader-Meinhof as an evolution of that sort of counterculture of the 60s. So what gave us Charles Manson in America gave us Bader-Meinhof in Germany. They didn't like the previous generation. They wanted to make a statement. They believed in revolution. They believed in the new sort of uh, pro-Palestinian terrorist groups that were coming up. And what brought it to a head, they, they ended up being arrested for other murders and hijacks and things like that, were incarcerated at Stamhain jail. What happened in October 77 was that four members of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, hijacked a Lufthansa plane flying from Parma to Frankfurt, and it ended up in Mogadishu. The terrorists on board were holding those hostages, saying that if you don't release 11 Red Army faction Bader-Meinhof terrorists, uh, we're going to kill all the passengers. What happened was the Germans sent their crack uh, counter-terrorist commando unit down, GSG-9, to Mogadishu, and stormed the plane. Funnily enough, it was actually two British SAS guys who threw in the stun grenades, so there was a lot of cooperation, of course, between... European authorities on that. Three of the terrorists on board were killed. And that news reached Bader-Meinhof, those terrorists, back in jail in Germany. Right, and then what did they do? They committed suicide. And what's extraordinary is that they actually received the news on a smuggled radio. There seemed to have been very little security in that jail because not only did they hear the news on a smuggled radio, but Andreas Bader and his associate managed to kill themselves with pistols in their cell. Extraordinary. 
Uh, another hanged himself. And a fourth, Ermagard Muller, stabbed herself four times. So talk about commitment. But this is why it's worth talking about terrorists in terms of a cult. They were really a violent cult. And they grew out of that movement of the 60s. They grew out of that hippie movement, that counterculture, going desperately wrong. But these cults, these violent cults, weren't a modern invention. I mean, we could talk about the People's Will, the Russian terror group from the 19th century. Well, as we've often said, you put the word peoples in, in a title and you know that they're going to be total charlatans and they're never actually going to represent the people. The people's vote. Yes, that was Narodnia Volya. Uh, it was a revolutionary terrorist group and it was absolutely a cult in the way it went about things and the way it controlled its members. They started as avowedly celibate and ended up crazily promiscuous with nothing in between <laughs> with nothing in between so to speak but they ended up they grew from this idea from the norodniks from basically privileged upper class youngsters in russia going into the countryside to live like peasants they wanted to change russia by politicizing the peasantry i'm sure the peasantry probably didn't want to have anything to do with it well, they didn't. They even set up bakeries and produced sort of artisan bread and things like that. But these got kind of similarities to some of the things today of the, of the middle and upper middle classes getting involved in certain cultural things which really are none of their business. Well, this is why I said it's amazing how these movements, these ideas produce crazy cults at the other end of the spectrum, which can sometimes turn to violence. And so it was with Narodnia Volya. They ended up realising that going out into the countryside, one of the things they didn't like was the cold of the Russian winter. So they hightailed it back to Moscow and St. Petersburg. Was that on their private jets to Barbados? <laughs> yes, the equivalent of their carriages. Yeah. So they ended up back in the cities and became revolutionaries and violent terrorists, and were extremely violent. I mean, the the attempts they made on... Hello. Uh, we're just going to have to pause. Dogs have bust in. The attempts they made on the life of Tsar Alexander II were legion and extremely creative. They spent most of their time digging tunnels, getting into sewer systems, using nitroglycerine to blow them up, whether at the Winter Palace or on his train. So... There were many attempts, and, and that was Narodnia Volya. He, he did eventually get killed, didn't he? He was killed by an anarchist revolutionary later on. I think it was 1881. But that was after many previous attempts, many earlier escapades by the revolutionaries. But they lived this sort of weird, cultic life before that time, and again, had rivals and other groups who were challenging them and coming up with different political perspectives. So this theme of violence leading to promiscuity, tell us a bit about that, Jamie. Well, I think sex and violence sort of go together in many of these cults. If you're going to coerce and control your members... Oh, I can't say members. <laughs> Too late. It's on tape. <laughs> If you're going to control and coerce the adherence to the cult, sex and violence are good approaches. You're going to have to control them somehow. And a lot of these people who join the cults are motivated by what they see as the perceived freedom within the cult to behave how they want to behave. And eventually the uglier side takes over. If you take David Berg's Children of God cult that was founded at Huntington Beach, California in 1968, you can see the classic degeneration of a cult into something really sinister, really evil. Yeah, it was, quite, it was a Christian um, cult to start with, wasn't it? It was a Christian-based, the Family International. It claimed it was Christian-based, but... In fact, it was, again, a free sex cult, polyamorous cult. And David Berg was preaching sex between adults and children and saying that this was a way of gaining salvation and it was perfectly acceptable. They had this creepy concept of flirty fishing. 
Yes, that was used by women and men in the cult to go out and trap uh, future adherents and, and drag people into the cult. It's a very powerful weapon with which to get people involved in a cult. From Huntington Beach to Los Angeles. And the present day, because you get cults such as NXIVM, where the cult leader has recently been jailed for 120 years. Yet there were still cult members demonstrating outside against his sentence. This, again, was a cult. It, it put itself out there as an organisation that could provide self-improvement classes, and there were many adherents in Los Angeles and around California. Yet, underneath it all, it turned out that the cult was simply sex-trafficking underage girls. So, Combined with the pyramid scheme, by the look of it. Yes, there's always fraud involved as well just like Bhagwan Rajneesh's cult in the 1980s in Oregon. So you always get these cults shot through with the twin aspects of sexual exploitation and fraud, and sometimes ending up, as we've said, with murder. So you can't really have a cult without a cult leader, and also this idea of the cult of personality, which has been a theme, particularly in modern times. And we're going to talk a little bit about these often deeply flawed people who have an, a mysterious attraction to others. So let's start with our old favourite, Hitler and the Nazis. It's extraordinary that someone like Hitler, who had so little personality, could still exude this charisma on stage, could still command people through his speeches, yet he was really uncharismatic, a very grey little figure. When you met him personally, that's what's so extraordinary about so many of these people. And just like cult leaders, they are, as you said, extremely flawed. They're either perverts, psychopaths or fraudsters, or all of those things. Hitler was helped by that Nazi cult that created him at its head. And the Nazis really started as a small cultic group. Well, this is the SS. Well, the SS really took over that sort of cult sort of role within the Nazi movement. And what's interesting is that because the SS gave a sort of platform for the lower middle classes to take on roles that previously in the German army were run by aristocrats and the upper classes, this gave a way in. So the sort of cult perspective, that cult group, that brotherhood, gave a sort of entree for people. It gave them hierarchy, it gave them status. It gave them a way to get in, and then it was you know, nicely combined with cod ideology, anti-Semitism, and a sort of overarching theme of paranoia. And there were so many strange occult practices and belief within the Nazi movement, particularly with someone like Heinrich Himmler in charge of the SS. There are two things in particular that are worth focusing on here. One was his obsession with the concept of panspermia, the idea that the Teutonic race, the Aryans, had come from a comet landing in the Arctic. And that's why the Nordic look was so prevalent in those Scandinavian countries. So he latched on to that. And if you look at the sort of cult rituals that the SS had, that Himmler pursued, in places such as Quedlinburg Castle, the spiritual home of the SS, where King Heinrich de Fergler, the Fowler, and his wife were buried in the crypt, you get all those sort of images of Nazi torchlight ceremonies and Himmler marching through for these strange occult practices, irreligious but occult practices, down in the crypt of Quellinburg Castle. These all fed in, and all fed in to creating that cult of personality. It's basically the Wizard of Oz. It's what you find at the end of the Yellow Brick Road. Absolutely nothing. A giant fraud. And the terrifying thing is that he was considered such a joke at the beginning and 50 million people dead later in 1945. That's what comes from following a cult. Let's go to Cuba. 
and we've got Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. The thing about Castro was that, as far as I know, he always claimed that he didn't believe in the cult of personality, and that, in fact, lent an extra dimension to the very obvious cult of personality, both surrounding Fidel and, of course, the famous poster boy for school children's walls, Che Guevara. Well, if you'd ever had to sit through one of his interminable speeches, you'd I never have, have believed... I did. In, when I used to go to Cuba, I sat through one... Yeah, it was in Spanish as well, which didn't happen. It went on for two hours. Oh, that was short. I, I know, mean, but he, wasn't, he was an old man and not expected to even speak. Some of his some of his speeches, I think, went on for sort of six to eight hours. It's absolutely insane. You're you're not going to be able to hold the audience with a speech that long. Mind but, you, it reminds me of the 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 speech writer for Brezhnev, who, when Brezhnev was getting older, he was told, um, you know, he couldn't cope with his three hour speeches. He was going to cut it down to one hour, make it shorter, and then he stood up at the next speech and spoke for three hours. And he wheeled. He got the interpreter to come in and said, "Look, I told you to cut my speech down to one hour." And the guy said, well, I, I did. It was one hour. It was one hour long. You just read it out three times. Yes, no one ever listened to them anyway. Yeah. Anyway. But, but Che Guevara, his, his cult of personality certainly grew when he was shot dead in Bolivia in 1967. So martyrdom always allows the cult of personality to grow. Yeah, and, and you you know, the photograph, I mean, it stays, he's he's a 39-year-old face, isn't he? He's never going to get old. It's like a rock star who dies young. They they stay in the consciousness of that yeah. age. Well, they're kind of meant to, aren't they, rock stars? Yes, but like those political figures like Shay, they belong to that era. So you identify that era or your feelings at the time with that particular person. Yeah. And then it gets even uglier with Cambodia. Well, of course, they had the big lead in the Vietnam War and then everything pushing over to Cambodia and the appalling death toll from the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. Yes, what happened there just defies any kind of imagination. And it's that cult of personality that gets out of control, particularly when that cult of personality is attached to an ideology that is so coercive, so demanding, so violent, so unforgiving, you end up with a situation in Cambodia where by the end of the killing fields, you've got 24,000 mass graves. You have quarter of the population dead, murdered or starved to death by the Khmer Rouge. That's about 2 million people killed. That is where that cult of personality, where those sort of cultic rituals, those cultic beliefs end. So, Jamie, on a happier note, now let's tell everyone how they can join our cult. <laughs> Unfortunately, the listeners to our podcast are too intelligent to be dragged into anything so stupid. Oh, you smooth as a cult. Devil. <laughs> yes. I was going to call our cult suckers, <laughs> see who ended up joining. You'd, you'd get a few, that's for sure. Well, my cult, um, I've decided, I was thinking about it this morning, it's going to be the cult of marmalade. I think that's a good one. It always ends in a sticky mess. (laughs) (laughs) And badly, with great disappointment. Not at all. My latest, my third round of marmalade this year is really absolutely on point. That's actually a bit like the Church of England, isn't it? (laughs) It is. It's sort of calming. Yes, I, I, patches, I've, matches and dispatches. Yes, I've always said that at the end of the day, I would prefer just to have a chocolate biscuit and a cup of tea in the crypt after a really good carol concert. Well, I can vouch for that because every time you come here, the chocolate biscuit tin is reduced. And the good thing is you don't actually have to believe in anything. You know, it's so much more rewarding than taking poison and putting a plastic bag over your head. Yeah, on a serious note, it is, you know, we worry about cancel culture and deplatforming as we've talked before, but it is serious, this, this lack of history. It's serious because if people don't have reference points, if they can't debate, if they can't talk openly, if they're not exposed to wider points of view, if they simply try and close down discussion, then you are going to end up with people believing nothing except the conspiracy theories they're told on social media. And that's the problem. Reality goes out of the window. 
It's the one thing that cults thrive on, which is why it's important they don't become larger mass movements because then it starts getting dangerous. And why we need to fight for free speech. We do, always. Right, Jamie. P.S. time, postscript time. I think we should talk about the Moonies. Well, yes, at this point I'm going to have to confess that I became a cult member. No, I didn't. But in the year before university with my twin brother, 1981, we did come across the Unification Church in New York, their headquarters there, and we decided to go inside. So we signed up. Well, we didn't sign up, we signed in (laughs) and started listening to the absolute crap they were talking. What immediately struck me was that in the background, there was a video playing of Sun Young Moon, their leader, on his various yachts and shark fishing boats and standing next to his highly polished Rolls Royces while English hymns were playing in the background. I thought, who would believe this nonsense? It's just a fraudulent group. It's just a money-making scheme. So when they said, do you want to get integrated? We said, well, we'll get integrated later on because we're going to California. They said, can we have your names again? And I couldn't remember the name that I signed up under at the beginning. I think I signed myself Baron von Munchausen, but they didn't spot that. I assume that you were going to drop your trousers and do a Mooney. (laughs) (laughs) It's the sort of thing that I was probably tempted to do in those days. But I really thought I'd never heard such nonsense in my life. But I think you've got to be pretty damaged, pretty credulous, pretty suggestible, uh, pretty low to end up being drawn into these sort of groups. It's a strange world. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, folks. Forget about the Moonies. As you know, I'm with Paddington Bear and I'm going to put on the toast and break out a new jar of marmalade. If you want to join my cult, check out the recipe in the show notes. Thank you, Jamie. My cult's better. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck.